0: I did not pray for the airplane to crash. I did not want the crew or passengers to die. I did not pray for their demise. But oh, what a story it was. I was raised on stories about miracles and answered prayers. Most of the children's stories at church dealt with miraculously answered prayers. The primary fair and the magazines given out in our Sabbath school classes each week, Our Little Friend, the primary treasure, the junior guide, the youth's instructor, all dealt with the conundrums and dilemmas of growing complexity that were eventually resolved by humble, simple prayers. Diseases were healed. Gardens were weeded. Lost pets were found. Final tests were passed. Broken families were reconciled. Helpful hitchhikers were angels in disguise and cars that ran out of gas somehow drove just far enough to get to the closest gas stations. It was reassuring to know that the powerful God who answered prayers was on our side. The best stories, though, came from the mission fields. Big Mo, the Burmese strongman, accompanied by angels unseen by him on both sides, walking fearlessly through the jungle, as the men who planned to kill him ran away when they saw his heavenly messengers. The big yellow truck which jogged along and jogged along with a load of students riding back, but then jogged over a steep precipice and crashed to the bottom of a deep ravine. Miraculously, no one was injured. I love those mission stories, except the ones about snakes. I despise snakes. So when I was an early teen and my family and I traveled to India to serve as missionaries, I expected to finally see some miracles and answer prayers in my own life. I had found that my prayers were not as effective as most of the ones in the Sabbath school magazines. In fact, I had been pretty disappointed with their results. But now, as a real missionary... I was sure there would be more power in my prayers and some miracles in my life. Our trip to India was rather uneventful, miracle-wise, until we landed in Bangkok, Thailand. We spent a couple of days sightseeing and then visited with some friends of my parents, waiting until early in the evening when they drove us to the airport to catch our flight to Singapore. As with most missionary visits, we finished our day with worship and prayer for safe travels for our family. Unfortunately, when we arrived at the airport, we learned that there had been a mix-up with our tickets, and our plane had already departed. We would have to wait until the next day to catch a flight. My family and friends were disappointed, but I was thrilled. I had heard this story before. Because we were missionaries and had prayed for safe travels, we were going to be miraculously saved. The plane we had just missed was going to crash, with all aboard perishing. This was going to be a wonderful mission report for our church papers. It was with mixed feelings that I learned the next day that the plane on which we were supposed to have traveled had arrived in Singapore safely, with all souls on board. Prayer is one of the simplest and most universal concepts in religion. It is also one of the most complex, complicated, and problematic. Every religion, of which I am aware, has some method of communicating with their god or gods. In ancient times, this often involved sensual rituals and blood sacrifices, Hallucinatory drugs have regularly been involved. Communication with the gods frequently is limited to certain subgroups or classes of initiates. Almost always, physical positions of abeyance or humiliation are required, and the language used may be secretive and mysterious or archaic and stilted. But the idea itself that humans can directly communicate with God and make personal requests of Him is deeply troubling to some. There are obvious problems. If one prays for a beautiful sunny day for a picnic and a farmer prays at the same time for rain for his crops, whose prayer wins? Does the victory go to the most righteous or the most pious? James 5.16 seems to imply this. The prayer of a good person has a powerful effect. Is there an added benefit by gaining the entreaties of other good people or even a saint? Does it help to have large groups praying with and for you? This seems to be the idea on Facebook, where folks are asked to share requests far and wide so that more individuals will join the prayer chain Do Protestant Christians have an unfair advantage with their direct access to God, while others need to go through priests or prelates or shamans? In 1872, Francis Galton, a famous statistician and Charles Darwin's half-cousin, wrote an article that raised a number of questions about prayer. The title of his article was, Statistical Inquiries into the Efficacy of Prayer. We all know, of course, that you can lie with statistics, but he did highlight some rather interesting difficulties for which he felt the available statistics might help answer the question, Are Prayers Answered? He noted that in all countries and in all creeds, the priests and pastors urge patience to pray for their recovery, and they counseled the friends and families of patients to come to their aid with the prayers as well. Instead of focusing on the recovery from medical illnesses, though, which Galton felt were more susceptible to manipulation and subjectivity, he suggested a comparative study between two groups of patients with whom there could be clearly measurable objective outcomes. One group would be those who were markedly religious with pious friends and family members. Another group would be made up of cold-hearted and neglected patients. The clinical entity he wished to study was amputations. He stated that an honest comparison of the results of their outcomes should manifest a clear proof of the efficacy of prayer. He then studied outcomes for two groups for whom he was aware that large numbers of people prayed every night for their health and safety, members of the British royal family and missionaries. The available data showed, however, that lawyers, a group that he believed received few prayers from others on their behalf, on average lived longer than did the members of the British royal family. He also found that slave traders' ships were no more likely to be lost at sea than were ships carrying missionaries to their posts. I was unable to find the article, but I also recalled that David Larson did a survey of physicians at Loma Linda University regarding their experiences with prayer for patients that had been miraculously answered. Unless my memory fails me, there were very few, if any, physicians at this openly Christian institution who felt they had seen a clearly miraculous answer prayer in their patients. Part of the problem with prayer is that we too often perceive it to be a miraculous way of inducing or persuading a supernatural power to intervene in a natural situation. It is almost magic in our key text today Luke 11:1 we find the disciples of Christ recognizing that much of the power Christ and John the Baptist had came from their prayer lives. they too wanted a life of powerful prayer Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord. Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Luke 11.1 Ellen White references this event in her book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. The disciples had been for a short time absent from their Lord. When on their return, they found him absorbed in communion with God. Seeming unconscious of their presence, he continued praying aloud. The Savior's face was irradiated with a celestial brightness. He seemed to be in the very presence of the unseen, and there was a living power in his words as of one who spoke with God. The hearts of the listening disciples were deeply moved. They had marked how often Jesus spent long hours in solitude and communion with his Father. It was from hours spent with God that he came forth morning by morning to bring the light of heaven to men. The disciples had come to connect his hours of prayer with the power of his words and works. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, pages 102 and 103. Luke then goes on in chapter 11 to lay out the Lord's Prayer and tells a rather interesting story that implies we need to pester God to get him to answer our prayers. He tells of a man who late at night goes to a friend's home and, knocking on the door, begs him for three loaves of bread because he has just received a visitor and has no food. The friend does not want to get out of bed and open the door, but because of the man's persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Luke then seems to retreat a bit and contrasts the goodness of God with the reluctant neighbor and states, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In Matthew 7.11, the gift includes all good things. It states that your Father, who is in Heaven, will give good things to those who ask Him. When I was in high school, there was a famous Adventist evangelist who preached and wrote a great deal about the ABCs of prayer. Ask, believe, and claim. I will grant you that I probably misinterpreted his ministry, but I do know that a couple of young men who worked for him attempted to use this formula to help my wife's family get rid of some woodpeckers who were destroying some of the wooden eaves in their house. Claiming a promise from Psalms 91 that God shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence, these young ministers almost demanded that God drive these woodpeckers from the house, believing sincerely that they would. The woodpeckers left in the spring, just like they did every year. So what is the purpose of prayer? Prayer. Let's list some biblical statements we have about prayer. Here are some of the things that are mentioned that are not effective in prayer. God doesn't like prayers that heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. God is a God of intelligence. Using lots of words or flowery phrases doesn't seem to impress him. God also will not hear those who regard iniquity in their hearts. Those who hate good and love evil may cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. Those who do not work for fair judgment and righteousness upset God. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offering of your fat beasts Take, though, away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy stringed instruments, but let judgment run down like waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. There are also promises made about good prayers, or prayers. James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a good person has powerful effect. We should also remember Luke's comments about being persistent in prayer. Eventually, it may finally wear down the one we are petitioning. We also noted that if we, as evil parents, give good things to our children, we should have even greater expectations that God, who is the definition of good, will give good things to those who ask. Ellen White adds some interesting relational descriptions of prayer. It is the opening of the heart to God as a friend. It is communion with God. And sometimes it is not immediately answered to strengthen our faith through continual exercise. So it would seem unusual to have someone who is acknowledged by heaven to be a very good person, a very good friend of God's who would petition him persistently for a good thing and be refused. But that is exactly what we find more than once in biblical examples. Let me note here, just for the record, that I believe those who say God always answers prayers, either with a yes or a no or a maybe later, have never really struggled with God over an important matter. I think such a response to one who is struggling in prayer trivializes both prayer and the search for truth. Moses was one of God's best friends ever. He was such a good friend that he was constantly reminding the children of Israel that there was no need for them to be afraid of God, even when the mountains were shaking and lightning and thunder were crashing all around them. In fact, he was so close to God that Exodus tells us he spoke with God face to face, as a man speaks to his friends. If the prayer of a good man has a powerful effect, Moses should have had his prayers answered the way he wanted. But they weren't. For the thing he wanted more than anything else in his life, God said, no. We read about it in Deuteronomy 3:23 through 26. At that time, I earnestly prayed, Sovereign Lord, I know that you have shown me only the beginning of the great and wonderful things you are going to do. There is no God in heaven or on earth who can do the mighty things you have done. Let me cross the Jordan River, Lord, and see the fertile land on the other side, the beautiful hill country and the Lebanon mountains. But because of you people, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen. Instead, he said, that's enough. Don't mention this again. Or as the King James Version puts it, "Speak no more unto me of this matter. Elijah was another good friend of God's, and was such a righteous man that God took him to heaven in a fiery chariot without chariot without seeing death. I believe that makes Elijah's unanswered prayer the most ironic one in the Bible. Elijah had just gone through a tremendously successful religious crusade. During a great drought in Israel, he had called fire down from heaven. He had convinced the people of Israel to proclaim, The Lord is God, the Lord alone is God. They had turned on the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and had killed them at Elijah's command. Elijah had then bowed down to the ground with his head between his knees and had prayed to God to send rain and end the drought. It didn't work, at least not at first. But Elijah persisted in prayer, and after the seventh prayer, a little cloud no bigger than a man's hand came up out of the sea, and in a little while, heavy rain began to fall, and there was a deluge. What a day for celebration! Fire called down from heaven, the enemy routed, the drought at an end, the people acknowledging God as the one true God. But there was this woman. Queen Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. It was a very pointed message. May the gods strike me dead if by this time tomorrow I don't do the same thing to you that you did to the priests of Baal and Asherah. And like many a good man in the face of an angry woman, Elijah ran for his life. I say ran for his life. This is where the irony comes into the story. He was afraid he would be killed, so he fled for his life. And then he begged God to kill him. Not only did God refuse to answer this prayer, he never let Elijah die. There are other biblical examples of what I would consider unanswered prayers. David, called a man after God's own heart, pleaded for the life of the child for whom he had committed murder and was refused. Paul that the thorn in his flesh, which some think was poor eyesight after the Damascus Road experience, asked that God take this away from him and was told, My grace is sufficient for you. But the greatest unanswered prayer in the Bible, at least the greatest prayer that did not go the way the prayer wanted it to go, was the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Each of the Synoptic Gospels has Jesus begging his Father to take this cup of suffering from me. We tend to quickly move on to his deference to the Father's will. But in this prayer, he was pleading with the Father to find an alternative. Father, is there no other way to accomplish the salvation of man and the restoration of our kingdom without My having to go through this infinite suffering and death? But there was no other way, and Jesus ultimately submitted to the Father's will and the plan that had been put in place before the foundations of the world. Jesus knew that there is no magic in prayer. He knew that prayer is not a formula by which our wishes and wants are obtained. To him, Prayer was a conversation with his Father. It was the breath of his soul. And when in prayer he lived in the very atmosphere of heaven, as his disciples surmised, it was the vital secret of his spiritual power. It was the opening of his heart to God as to a friend, not to work any change in God, but to keep himself in harmony with his Father. It was his greatest habit. This type of prayer, this continual conversation with God as with a friend, Jesus offers to us on the basis of trust. If we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more can we trust that the God of heaven will give give good gifts to us? When that day comes, you will ask him in my name, And I do not say that I will ask him on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. But these gifts and this trust are not for the childish or the immature. Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. Desire of Ages, page 225. This, then, is how we should pray. Our Father...